Welcome to Sitcom Geeks. I'm Dave Cohen and uh, James Carey is not with us uh, today, I'm afraid. He's uh, he's stuck in uh, Yeovil. We can all say bloody Tories. Can't even get a train to get James up to Sitcom Geeks. But that's okay. We're doing a sort of Christmas special. Uh, if you're wondering what the sort of uh, hubbub is in the background, uh, it's the, um, the, the, the various celebrations uh, have started early for Christmas. And uh, we took the very clever idea of uh, deciding to record upstairs in a room above a pub uh, that doesn't have a door. So uh, so now we're up here. So joining me, first of all, I'd like to say hello to Sarah Gibbs. Hello. And to Paul B. Davis. Bassett. Let's, Paul use, Bassett Davis. Can we use my full name? Yes, for, OK. If you come a little bit closer purposes. as well. Paul Bassett Davis. Um, hello. So uh, we're kind of, and we're hoping actually we're going to be joined fairly soon uh, by Pippa Evans. But uh, Sarah is, uh, I first met Sarah in 2013. I uh, interviewed her for, uh, along with Bill Dare, for a place at the National Film Television School. Uh, She was one of the first uh, graduates there and um, has subsequently uh, had something of a pretty good career I think it's easy to uh, I could say I could be more kind of uh, uh, extravagant she's had an amazing career since then but I, I gather uh, there are lots of exciting things happening that we're not allowed to talk about but there are some things that we can uh, Paul Bassett Davis I met probably about 1977 I think so I've known Paul a long long time uh, you if you've been listening to the show regularly will know I've mentioned Paul many many times as uh, my mentor um, the person who really got me into comedy uh, and um, had it wasn't some, my fault it was it was all down to you I shall actually yeah. tell the, the story sorry. I shall tell the, the actual story, what happened was I was working behind the bar uh, at a pub in uh, Bristol called The Lion, uh, which was a very sort of well-known pub where all the sort of very trendy, fashionable people hung out, including Paul. And Paul saw me behind the bar and he said, uh, I, I, I like what you look like, would you like to be in my next play, please? And I said, oh yes please, because I already knew Paul, he, he ran this company called Crystal Theatre, and I thought, wow, Paul has asked me to be in his play. And uh, the parts he wanted to play was six different perverts. Uh, <laughs> In a play about prostitutes, and uh, so that was um, that, that. That was my kind of that. That was my start, really. In my defence, that was the only Crystal Theatre show that we didn't collaboratively write, or I didn't write. That was mostly that. The, the raw material of that was provided by Jeremy Sandford, yeah. Jeremy the, Sanford. the late Jeremy Sandford, who, who of course was wrote Edna the Inebriate Woman, and the famous also um, Kathy Come Kathy Home, Come Home yeah. uh, who, and he was an extraordinary writer. And he he immersed himself in his work, um, literally. He worked. He, I mean, I'm afraid there's no other way to put it. He did spend a year going and, and you know, uh, sort I, I of getting involved in the sex trade as a, as a customer, but very yeah. frankly and very honestly, mm. and then d- d- dumped on me a massive stack of, of text and data and said, right, I'd love you to make this into a play. And because he was such a... He was actually a really lovely man, very yeah. honest and very straightforward and very... We, we, we turned it into what ended up, the end of that road was you stripped to your underpants, <laughs> apparently having cigarettes stubbed out on your back. And enjoying with, it. With, well, you don't have to say that, Dave. Because you, 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 you actually had a lasterplast on your back, <laughs> yeah. so flesh-coloured a lasterplast so that the, the cigarettes were actually stubbed out. Unless, of course, you 
voluntarily took no, me last to plast off. And I so remember you I could see uh, that the look on people. So I could see I was so close to the audience at the ICA where we did it, and uh, I could see the look on their eyes when they saw this uh, actor Terry. She was playing this prostitute and stubbing this cigarette in my in my back, and I would go ooh every time it happened. And I could see the audience wincing mm. in pain, and I was just sitting there. It's all right. It's just I sort of wanted to reassure them. Really, that's how mm. bad an actor I was. I thought, like, <laughs> so no, we're no, fine. Okay. It's all right. I'm acting love, you know. Typecast again. Yeah. Um, Paul moved to to uh, Bristol. Uh, moved to London from Bristol very quickly. Became a very successful uh, writer, uh, radio writer. One of the few people who wrote regularly for uh, Radio 4's Week Ending and Radio 2's Headlines. Most most writers were either Headlines uh, or Week Ending, and Paul managed to do both. And you then were writing very successfully for Rory Bremner as well, I think. And uh, Jasper Carrot yeah. and Mel Smith and Griff Rhys Jones and. Yep. A bit of spitting image, and, and of course you did. You were a performer as well, yeah. and you were winning Perrier nominations all the way through the early 1980s. Well, what we don't tell them, Dave, is <laughs> that the first Perrier or Comedy Award Edinburgh nomination I got was one of, uh, not long after it had been founded, and there was a there was um, a short list of ten. And there were only 11 shows that were eligible, so it wasn't too difficult to be on to be shortlisted. Our third guest has arrived. So this is coming to join us now as she as she squeezes past Paul Bassett Davis is Pippa Evans. So, hello, Pippa. Hello, hello, everyone. Pippa, I met you probably more than ten years ago, I think. We are just talking about uh, when people started. Uh, Sarah probably began in comedy two or three years ago. Paul and I go back a little bit longer years. than that. Uh, you, were, uh, you were playing the... Uh, I keep wanting to call her Loretta Lynn, but it wasn't Loretta, Loretta Lynn. Maine. Loretta Maine, the yes. country and western singer, the character. country and western your, singer, yes. Your, your stand-up uh, character. That was, what, ten years ago, was that? You started doing that? Um, no, I think it was longer than that now. It was oh, really? maybe 13 years ago. Right, I've okay. been performing s- since I was 24, yes. I'm 37 now, so... Okay, okay. And you've yeah. been doing the, uh, the, the, the Showstoppers... Um, Improv musical, musical since then, yeah. For twelve years, yep. Oh, really? It's all becoming okay. it's all becoming long amounts of time, which is good because they're sort of um, for the first few years you get to be like I'm new in comedy, and then about around about five years, five to seven years, people start being sort of like, well, you're not new and you're not old, so what are you? Yeah. Uh, right. And so I feel like I'm just crushing into the bit where you can say, well, I've been doing this yeah. for you're more than ten years now, and people go, oh, well, you must be serious then. Welcome. It's a long, slow decline yes. now. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I look, but I, like, I look forward to being ignored with more respect. Okay. Have you been watching the um, Ken Burns documentary about country music? No, I haven't watched it. There's so many documentaries about country music. At the moment, I'm listening to the Dolly Parton oh, one, yeah. uh, the, the podcast. I was just going to say that I was reminded the other night by the segment they had on that of what an extraordinarily fantastic human being Dolly Parton is. Yeah. Well, I was the dramaturg on 9 to 5, the musical. Yes, I was. So uh, so I didn't get to meet her, but I did get to write words that came out of her mouth. That's so that was quite fun. That's that. literally my top and job of the year was... I Well, I really don't have to try hard because I love her so much. But, um, yeah, so the second half she sings my lyrics, and I love that. Yeah. Yeah. 
Brilliant. Okay, well, what I'd like to do, I think, we've talked a little bit about our, what, what, what you all do, and, and in fact, I haven't really mentioned, uh, Paul, that you've gone very much into the, the sort of the novel writing uh, world now. Yeah, you talked about all your other work. Years, yeah. And Stephen King's a fan of yours, isn't he? I have a postcard from um, my pal Steve. Okay. Uh, I mean, that's quite a good fan to have, story. isn't it? Yeah, uh, yeah it was a, a thing that they it was a It was a promotion for his book a couple of years ago they, they did a thing with the guardian for a sort of spooky short story competition so i was when i got to the final six or whatever it was and, and he liked them all so much he, he didn't he, he did choose one winner but he said oh look they should why don't we do a special little book with all these stories in so i'm in a book called six scary stories selected and introduced by stephen king so, there you go. That's really cool. Have you, did you get to meet him? Just, have you touched his hands? No. They're massive, aren't they? Massive They're hands. huge. They're actually too big to get, to get on I, a plane. <laughs> um, no, I've, hold up. I've got, but I did post a photograph of the, uh, of the, of the, uh, the postcard. As soon as I got it, it that went straight onto Twitter. <laughs> right, OK. So we've got, um, so far we've mentioned then Stephen King and Dolly Parton and, oh, and yeah. now let's mention Bill Dare because Bill, um, <laughs> Bill runs the National Film Television School course uh, that, that you took. So I'm, I'm just interested, uh, like when Paul and I started, I mean, I suppose you, you're kind of the, one of the sort of pioneers of alternative comedy, really. Not, not so much the, the, the comedy store end of it, but more the sort of the kind of the Ken Campbell uh, alternative yeah. theatre sort of side, really, weren't Yeah, I, I guess I did work... It was, uh, it was when I wrote Keith Allen, actually, into, into the, one of the last, the later, later Crystal Theatre shows, that that was all... He was just sort of heading off in that direction. And I was just beginning to get pissed off because the Edinburgh Festival Fringe had turned into a, a trade fair for stand-up comedy. And I thought, fuck it, this is, you know, I've not, got nothing against it, but I kind of missed the fact that there was, you, you know, that, that for years the Edinburgh Festival Fringe was very much somewhere where you could look, go and see challenging work and, and in really interesting avant-garde work. And then it sort of really it flipped, that if you wanted to go and see a new show by Robert Lepage, that was on the main festival, the international festival, and what was... I mean, and then... The, the, the Fringe Festival had become full of stand-ups and sort of reminded me that the, the entertainment industry is fundamentally very, very conservative. Um, so I kind of... That's when I did that show called Slave Clowns of the Third Reich as a sort of, fuck it, if you can't do a Fringe show at the Edinburgh Fringe, where can you do it? And I did it as sort of... as, as alternative as I could. <laughs> but you did... I mean, you, you've always... Uh Kept, you've always worked a lot with uh, stand-up comedians. Yeah. I mean, I wanted to talk a little bit about uh, the, the, the um, where we are, the kind of state of things th this year. I mean, one of the sad things, I know that you were a very good friend of uh, Jeremy Hardy, and uh, who uh, died this year. Yeah. I remember it was this time last year, yeah. you remember you telling me he, he wasn't well. It but, was, uh, it was uh, a year ago yesterday that he and Katie got married. Right. And then... 
it's a, it's only he died on the first of February. So, but well, I suppose apart from that aspect, I suppose one of the things that I wanted to talk about when we did this uh, podcast last year, James and I, we we had a few guests, and one of the guests was uh, Hannah George, who was the uh, been nominated for Writers Guild Best Online Sketch, and she was actually and and she won. I, I knew she'd won, but I wasn't allowed to tell her at that point. So I've become a slightly better actor since. You know, <laughs> 1970, 1981, whenever it was, we did that show um, of Jeremy Sanford's. Um, but now you're going to tell Sarah that she's won the BAFTA. Screw <laughs> <laughs> you, Phoebe Waller-Bridge. What, what Hannah did say though was, she said uh, it has definitely been an advantage for me in the last couple of years being a woman, and it has that 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 has changed in recent years. And I mean, and there are still there are a lot of things that are still not uh, perfect by any means. And when the Writers Guild did their uh, survey two years ago, something like 89% of all comedy is uh, on TV and radio is written by men. And it's probably now 85% maybe. So, woohoo. Uh, but I'd like to ask uh, Sarah first, do you, do, you think, uh, do, 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 do you think it's advantageous at all at this point uh, in the way that Hannah suggested maybe? I wouldn't go right to advantageous um, I think I've had maybe a different experience to a lot of people because I've sort of had to craft my own path in a different way because I have a disability that sort of I guess not necessarily limits but changes the kind of things I can do um, and participate in so I've had maybe a different experience to other people but I would say within the BBC and within radio they're certainly making huge strides towards including more women and there were two female bursary writers last year which was great um, and I was in at, you know, a couple of newsjack rooms where it was all women <clears throat> and now I'm losing my voice um, yeah, where it, sort of a, the, yeah, a few newsjack rooms where it was all female writers rooms which was amazing and we were all just apologising to each other for talking over each other and, you know, so. <laughs> I was going to say because I, I, I used to do a lot of those uh, those uh, writing room uh, gigs where you know, there was a, it was all blokes and you just all had to you basically had to shout louder than everybody else. I've been in be rooms heard. like that too. Yeah. Um, and I've been in rooms where I've got quite a lot on and then the next series, a man who didn't get anything on was asked back and I wasn't. That just yeah. might be my terrible personality. Um, <laughs> not going to assume sexism. Um, but yeah, yeah. I remember actually, in fact, I remember something you put on Twitter that, that I identified with because I, I, although I am a male, I, I am not one of those sort of pushy, uh, as Paul, I hope, will uh, attest that I'm not one of those guys who says, hey, come on, everybody, look at me. And it was something like you said something and I think it was about in relation to to Boris Johnson and Theresa May, wasn't it? That basically Boris Johnson is has put forward a deal that's pretty much exactly the same as one Theresa May did. It's something that's like being in the writer's room. It's like the woman said something and nobody listened to her, and then the man said exactly the same thing, and everyone goes, "Oh, great!" And I remember that quite a lot in rooms. But uh, yeah, I'd say that I'd say that the um, word advantageous is problematic, but just yeah. because it suggests that. Um, that we're all winning some something that and the men have been shoved into a corner when actually all that's <laughs> happened is that suddenly people have thought, oh, it's okay to have women in the writers' yeah. room. Oh, it's okay to have more than one. Uh, so rather than it being advantageous, it being like, oh, I'm, I'm no longer having to fight quite so hard to, to have my voice heard. 
Well, I remember Saskia Schuster saying uh, earlier this year, the head of ITV Comedy, saying it would be quite nice uh, for us to have rooms that aren't necessarily all men, which immediately got uh, reported as uh, men to be banned from yes, writing it. Yes, that was crazy. It was such a kind of willful misunderstanding of what and, had been said. And you said. do hear it, and I'm sure this evening at the party, you'll occasionally someone will have a couple of drinks and they'll say, well, well, it's all right for you because you've got tits or something mm-hmm. like that. And it will be disguised as a joke. But there is a slight um, anger mm-hmm. from some, some people because yes. it feels, it is that, 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 I can't remember whose line it is, but it's a great line of, um, of uh, you know, equality feels... Um, uh, feels like a disadvantage to those who've never experienced uh, inequality. Yeah, that's yeah. right. So, so that, that, they, yeah. they were saying that in the context of any kind yeah. of positive yeah. um, discrimination. Yeah. You know, so, so kind of um, as a as a sort of middle class, privately educated lady, uh, I can see why people don't need to hear my voice quite as much because there's a lot of privately educated ladies. So that that's okay. You know, so we we can all just. Find, find our spaces, you know, um, rather than yeah. ha- someone having to claim all the space. We can As share a, uh, the space. Yeah, Give I mean, peace a chance, all yeah. that kind of stuff. I mean, as a, as a member of the... <laughs> Famous song. Yeah, yeah I know. <laughs> uh, you might have heard I, it. I You're probably alive when it came out. it was there the first time round. <laughs> rather than says, not even nostalgic for me. I was just interested in your delivery, but who you were channelling at that moment. Yeah. <laughs> I think I was um, channelling Gemma Collins from Towie. Give yeah. <laughs> pace the chance. Come on, Mark, carry on. What else are we going to say? Sorry, Dave. <laughs> no, 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 that's quite all right. I mean, as a member of minority myself, I mean, obviously, I'm aware there's just not enough Jews in show business. Not at this table, hang on. Actually, that's true. I think we're actually in a situation where I, as a Welsh person, need to sort of have assert myself a little bit more strongly, actually, around this particular table. Okay, all right, fair enough. And are you privately educated? I thought you were going to say, am I I Jewish? Are you Jewish? I am. Um, I, I am... I would say, yes, privately educated, but not in the traditional sense. I, um, I grew up in a sort of new age... I wouldn't, I wouldn't call it a cult. That, that, would, that would be a strong word, and they might be litigious. Um, it's, no, it's, it's not a cult, but it was very much a community, a new age community, and a really alternative education system. Like very Steiner kind of thing. Yeah, exactly, well, Steiner. I love yeah. Steiner schools, they're amazing. <laughs> was it Steiner school? Um, yeah, it was a Steiner oh, right. school. I mean, we, we knew, Paul and I knew a lot of Steiner. In my dreams, people. everyone's educated Steiner. I think it's the best yeah, way, but, guys. But, 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 Who's doing the maths? <laughs> <Science. Yeah. laughs> well, well, they, they, and, then, and then you have a bit of maths. Like, and there's, there's a mix. Yeah. Isn't <laughs> I feel like Steiner's month. got loads of good stuff going for it. It's yeah. fantastic. Steiner's yeah. wonderful. Yeah. I mean, it's like, I don't know, I like their side of it where they they kind of, um, they've taken heed of the, a lot of the Scandinavian process, but they say, look, if it, there's no need for a kid to read before they're seven or eight or even nine, you know, it's, it's, you've got a whole life to do all that yeah. shit. Have or some, 16, <laughs> yeah, or 32, whoever, who, I, I've always said, you know, it's, I think but, people shouldn't go to school until they're about 30, <laughs> because it's kind of, there's too much other stuff. I feel like it's, that about university, particularly, yeah. like, I feel like I went to university, and if I now had those resources, the things yeah. I would do, no, I but would I didn't, I was just drunk the whole time. I'd love to be studying now, I'm 61. I'm saying I'd like to be studying now. I mean, if you don't, we've talked about this, you won't mind me mentioning, but I'm sure people will be wondering when you mention about the the disability, and it's uh, this is uh, Asperger's, uh, you're happy to talk about it. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Because I think there's a a lot of people in comedy. and a lot of people in Asperger, I've seen quite. I, I, I'm, I sense quite a strong bond 
between Asperger's and comedy, but I'm, I'm interested to know how that, how you, if you think that has kind of had any kind of uh, effect on your com- on your world of comedy. Um, probably in, in lots of different ways. I think um, I think differently um, to a lot of people. Um, you know, I'm, I'm not sure. You know, within the comedy community, I haven't actually met that many autistic people. I've met maybe two or three people who are sort of, I guess, diagnosed or openly autistic. But yeah. that doesn't mean there aren't more people out there. Um, but it can be quite a difficult industry if you're autistic because it's quite sociable. You know, a lot of the conversations happen at the pub, um, and you know, it's very long days in rooms with sort of uh, autistic people have sensory problems a lot of the time. So. You know, I find it really difficult to have long days in rooms, especially in a building like TVC, where the lights are really bright and things. So there are some things that are inaccessible to me and that I have to work around. Um, But it's also meant that I've had to be creative in finding my own career path and I think carving out a bit more of a niche for myself. So maybe that's motivated me more. Um, So, yeah, different different ways, good and bad, that it's affected things. Yeah, Okay. Um, so I suppose the next thing that I would like, quite like to talk about, again, in terms of, of this year then, is, uh, I mean, there's, there's been a lot of changes in the last few years uh, in terms of what what we call sitcom and the rise, the rise of some sitcoms and the decline of other sitcoms. I mean, I'd like to just talk for a moment to you, Pippa, about the, the Showstoppers show, because you do a lot of improvisation, don't you? Do, mm. do, do you also do a lot of uh, writing as well? Or? So I sort of do uh, probably... 60% improvising and 40% writing so uh, within any of my shows there will be improvisation but um, so Showstopper is completely improvised obviously um, but through Showstopper we've studied narrative and story so much that I actually find writing really uh, fun now whereas before it always felt like oh gosh I don't know if I can I can write but because over 12 years we've done so much work and work together so I love collaborative writing which is I think why I find writing rooms are quite difficult when it's sort of we're writing together but also I need to make sure that I get all my jokes in because of my ego um, rather than you know one of the things we've worked the hardest with with Showstopper is getting how did you get 10 people to write something collaboratively in the moment on a stage in front of everyone right. uh, it's really difficult so yeah so half, half writing half you write, you're made basically up. writing a musical every night yes. weren't you really so you've kind of and, and you must be aware of the kind of the narrative constraints of a like well we've got a two-hour show we want yeah. a beginning a middle and an end yeah. we want characters so you there's a lot of that happening yeah. That, yeah and then we do a kids show and the kids show we don't do any of the work we ask the kids everything and interestingly the kids will do the beginning and the middle end for you you don't have to you don't have to go well i suppose we better go back to Dreamtown, eh they'll, they'll take <laughs> you back to Dreamtown because they know they just know how stories work okay. it's really interesting yeah do you think i mean uh i, I Maybe less. I, I don't know, Paul, about you, but I certainly. I mean, I don't quite get the same number of meetings that I was getting, say, ten, ten years or even twenty years ago. But I mean, are you getting a sense that, uh, sorry, that there are more, that there's more call for narrative sitcom now? Yeah, definitely. I mean, you know, in the last, I've only been in the industry, a few, you know, a few short years, and I've had quite a few meetings and you know have stuff going on that I can't talk about so I think there's a lot of opportunity out there Um, I think it's just sort of I think it can be quite difficult to find the right people and to connect with them and to put yourself out there and to find the right story for that person Um, and you know when it works I'm sure it works really well but also you know I think there's uh, I treat everything with a lot of caution because um, 
it's quite a difficult industry. It's very hard to get anything away. And most of my friends who are sort of, I guess, at a similar um, stage in their careers have had their first really big crushing disappointments. So um, I'm, I'm at the stage where I'm sort of in, in the exciting phase of stuff and it hasn't all come crashing down just yet. Yeah. But I'm very, very aware, you know, I've seen people have stuff sort of pulled from under them right at the last second, yeah. just as things are getting made or just as, you know, and it's, yeah, yeah. there's a lot of preparing yourself for that heartbreak. And I think probably maybe you can't prepare yourself and no. when it happens to me, I'll just be under my duvet for a couple of years. But I think one of the great things about just getting to this point of having done it for more than 10 years is you start to see the cycles of, um, oh, it's everything's great and wonderful, and then suddenly, um, no, actually, we, we've decided to not make, uh, make any of your projects, and also we don't like you anymore. And then about two years later, they go, wait, whatever happened to Pippa? Re oh, hey, let's all email Pippa. You know, and, then, uh, and then the same thing will happen again. So these like, you start to really notice these cycles of, uh, of interest. Uh, and then, like you say, as you say, it's a decline from now, so I expect those cycles to just yeah. get wider and wider and wider. It's, yeah, but, it's all over. I, I, I mean, I literally sat at a restaurant you know, raising a flute of champagne with the producer and the, you know me and my co-writer, and it's all. And then three weeks later, you sort of say, "What's happening?" And then you sort of phone up, and they go, "Oh, yes, he doesn't work here anymore. No, we've got a new head of comedy." And you know, and then we we, yes. was, we we you know we were we were sitting around toasting the. But I, I think that the, the interesting thing, but to bring it back to sitcom is, you know, it's a long, it's quite a more quite a while since I pitched a sitcom. The last one I did was a, a, a radio one that I did myself um, about five years ago, I guess now, uh, which didn't get uh, a second series actually, but. Um, that wasn't my fault. It was everyone else's fault except mine. But I do teach. You know, I do quite a lot. Of, I run comedy write, some sitcom writing workshops. And you know, ten years ago, I would have been able to say that quite, you know, quite firmly that look, ninety-five percent of sitcoms are classic sitcom structures where nothing changes. It's a circular structure. It's like at the beginning of Porridge, he's lying on the bunk reading the sun. At the end of that episode, he's back lying on the bunk reading the sun. It's that absolutely closed circle and there's absolutely no character development. But now I, in, I find in, in, in works, as I'm saying, look, you know, we're talking about sort of 80% as that. But because I'm so much of a fan of things like Bag, Peter Kay's car share, catastrophe, all the things we go, hang on, is this a sitcom? It's 30 minutes long, but actually at the same time there seems to be some character development, there seems to be an overall narrative arc over a series, and so all those definitions that used to be very clear-cut, and I think this is a reflection on the, the, the narrative, and the same thing, it's interesting, the same thing happened, you'll remember, Dave, quite a few years ago, just when I, as I said earlier on about getting pissed off at the fact that Edinburgh became a, a, a trade fair for stand-up comedy, there, there was then a sort of wave of people saying, ah, oh, yes, but it's not stand-up, it's actually narrative stand-up. And then a lot of people came out, um, I think people like Daniel Kitts and people like that, mm -hmm. who emerged, and, it was, and they, were sort of, they were still standing there by themselves with the mic and doing funny stuff, but it was a story they were telling rather than a series of jokes. So that, I think that, that, does, that you know, I think I, I personally just go from a sort of cranky, you know, I, I do believe we are hardwired for narrative and that's the yeah. way we make sense of the universe and et cetera, et cetera. So I do think that, that you can only suppress narrative for so long mm -hmm. and it will always come up. And that's what I loved about 
they, they, they almost resisted it in the first series of Peter Kay's car share. They almost resisted it. And then the second series, it's like, fuck it, no, we're gonna, we got to see what happens to these characters and how they, how they develop and how they go. So I think it's hard to keep it down. The emotion, it's like the emotional, yeah. we just can't. We are hungry. But also hungry. I wonder if as we've become a sort of crueler world, uh, as it were, uh, that we kind of look for these stories uh, where we feel connected to the characters far more than in the, in the old days when we were happy with Porridge and, and stuff. We rewatch Porridge now, still funny, but you, you don't go, oh, I really worry about, about uh, him at night. Yeah. You know, it it and there is no consolation. No. Whereas now, you might. I, I, do you think that it's because we are perhaps looking for consolation that, that, that this is. Well, the hunger for narrative has kind of well, come back up again. Like if you look at Mum, Mum was such yeah. a great, you know, would you call Mum a sitcom? Some mm. people wouldn't, some people call it a comedy drama, some people call it a drama with comedy bits. But I thought it was so beautiful yeah. and, mm. and such a connection with this character that we all kind of recognised yeah. but still felt fresh and new. I thought they were, I thought he, I thought Peter, what's his name, about Peter uh, Mum, oh. I thought his character was wonderful as well. And we're so used she to seeing him murder people and then here he is being like, dreamy. <laughs> I, mean, I think that was, you know, that was one of exactly one of these sort of hybrid things mm. like it's it, you look at the shape of certain parts of it and it looks like a sitcom but mm. it's actually I think it was pretty much comedy drama with the really nice developing um, well, well that, that's I think partly that's probably because you know the audience sitcom uh, went through this phase of be- because the non-audience sitcom, the peep shows and the offices came along and the, and the American shows as well and heightened the realism more and so it became harder for people to sit at home and watch uh, people laughing hysterically at four people in basically yeah. like a sort of theatre set but uh, which is sort of quite interesting to me that the, the sitcoms the audience sitcoms that are succeeding now are very much the sort of theatrical like the sort of Ben Elton Brown's Shakespeare Miss Brown's Boys which was a very very successful live show uh, Miranda and they all sort of break into song so I'm, I'm, you know, I'm quite surprised that you, I'm sure you went a long way. I'm sure you had the equivalent meeting to Paul with the Durham producers. The TV oh, the producers. old heartbreak. With Let's bring that up. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, sorry. To bring it up. <laughs> you I, must I, have I, suffered, Pippa. I drink another pint of wine and then tell you about the most heartbreaking experience in the business that I ever had, darling. It was absolutely awful. If I think Judy Dench turned to me and said, I'm thinking of anything that should be an audience. A, a, a half hour audience show and believe me because we tried with our uh, radio uh, musicals 15 minute musicals mm. um, that, that you know a self-contained different show every week as opposed to necessarily the, the same characters coming back every week but that sort of feels like an obvious thing yeah um, I mean the, the problem we have obviously bitter. is uh, yeah. well I'm not funny enough like I say like I've had enough time to not not be bitter because I kind of you kind of as you start to understand telling more you go oh I can see why they made that choice they just can't trust they I love the way we talk about them like they're this big <laughs> machine that we go to the TV people they said you know they can't they just can't trust improvisation so they would never trust us to improvise a thing and that they could cut it down so we did it on Radio 4 one series and it was really great and we did it right to time so they, they didn't edit it at all and uh, that was very exciting we didn't get a second series uh, that was a change of commissioner yeah. and then the set, and then we've talked to so many people so many people come see Showstopper and say we love it Every, oh it's so good it's the oh we'd love to come for a meeting and then, and then they go is there any way you can make it more like whose line is it anyway and we're like no that was so long ago 
Are you a fan of Curb um, enthusiasm? Yes, I love Curb. Yeah. I, I, I think that what's extraordinary is sort of looking when you sort of uh, dig drill into what he does, particularly Larry David, is it's fantastically tightly structured scenically. And then within that is huge freedom, massive latitude, but the actual storytelling structure is as tight as as a drum, mm. and and it's beautiful. And it's the, it, I think particularly because he's working with a cast he knows so well. It's that combination of that's how to make. It's almost like he's in, for, for, not everyone likes him. It's to me, he's almost like he's cracked it. Mm. How to do the improvisatory element mm. within a, 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 a repeating sitcom? And I, so I would, as a purist, say that's not improvisation. What it is is it's devised and and with imp- moments of improvisation in it. So yeah. because because in it's that scene, guidelines. such guidelines, and in that scene, if I decide actually I hate you and I'm going to take the car to Miami, no, no, no. it would be cut. No, sorry, that's not in the that's story structure. Do you see what I mean? So you can't yeah. actually improvise the story structure. You no. can only improvise no, our brilliant banter. But, but, so that, you know. So story structure is the thing that's yeah. absolutely tight. And within even within scenes, it's like they know he knows where he wants that scene to end. Yeah. And but there's a latitude in terms of dialogue and, and character based stuff that goes I, on within. I, it. I do also think that we have a danger of um, thinking something can only be valid if it's on television, as well. So uh, so showstopper has to be live it just has to be it needs yeah. an audience like even if we got it on tv even if, even if we found the producer who trusted us and they gave us a million trillion pounds i don't think we could reproduce what happens in a theater with 900 people yeah. so i i feel i might be digging a grave sorry showstoppers if you're listening uh, but um our particular show so showstopper could write something that we then improvised in but it wouldn't be showstopper that's oh, a shame because I was just talking to no! a commissioner who just said they want a six part series of showstopper can I'll you edit that bit out no. edit it out <laughs> but uh, yeah so that's um, I mean the, 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 I think the thing that I'm picking up from sort of seeing commissioners and hearing them talking about stuff they sort of on the one hand they want they want the thing that's the sitcom which is the characters that never learn on the other hand they want more comedy drama and of course in drama characters learn so you're kind of you've got a basic contradiction they're saying right can you have characters who learn but don't learn that's uh, the comedic conflict yeah. right there yeah. Yeah. there we but go I mean, in the sense, I mean, we talked about it on, on the podcast you know a character like uh, Phil Dunphy in, in Modern Family he does he does learn every week uh, how to be the right father having spent the first 20 minutes being the wrong father and then he he learns but he forgets it all again the following week and that's totally believable or he remembers it in fact it's a lifetime's it's a lifetime's work actually yeah. learning yeah. That, that, that that learning process so it, it, it's great because it's open-ended I guess. well Steve Carell in the American I think what you know when you compare the American office to the British office the fact that they managed to make what 160 yeah. episodes whereas the British has 12 episodes I think or maybe 14 mm. um, and they're very different programs but um, but you know my my Michael, I love Steve Carell so much. In that, it pains me just to think about him. And me and my husband would often watch it and go, "Oh, Michael!" Because you know he's going to yeah. be stupid again. But but you do have seen him learn, and he slowly learns tiny that, things. That's just go off after they stop trying to in the second season yes. after they stop trying to reproduce. Because if you watch the first one, yeah. it's awful, isn't it? Watching him trying yeah. to do an impression. And that's of Ricky why Gervais. it's so brilliant what, what Ricky Gervais and Stephen Martin did. They they they, 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 they it was game over because the, the, in the Christmas special of the mm. British yeah. Office, finally David Brent gained a tiny, tiny bit of self-awareness. Game over. End of story. They, they guaranteed that you could not write any more 
yeah. office episodes because it was it was done. Mm. So uh, and that was a very I thought I, I really admired the way they just said no yeah. that's it and we are now going to guarantee that we can't do it anymore by actually ter- making him sub you know just finally become more human and it was very poignant I thought um, yeah. but I agree with you about the American office yeah. Yeah. and and and, their tr- and their trick there is that you know, you meet everyone in the office yeah. so actually yeah. in an episode Steve Carell can just do one thing but then you spend the episode with Stanley and you're like oh Stanley no, there, are no, there are no B characters almost yeah, yeah absolutely everyone's got their little storyline somebody said to me that um, a producer who I went for a meeting with uh, with, a, uh, with an idea for a sitcom that was it was, it was you know modern enough it was set in a sort of it was build air wasn't it no, it, wasn't. No, okay. it was a couple of years ago and it was set in a sort of warehouse that's now become the sort of place that everybody talks about but he said you know and he's, he's a great guy and I love him a lot and he said well the, the office the office sitcom is dead can you do? Can we do an office or a workplace sitcom anymore? Or do you think we can? Is there going to be one in 2020? Mm-hmm. Or? Yeah, because the workplaces are. Ch- there's no longer the old workplaces. The workplaces become half of it's become in, uh, abs- uh, online workplace. So we can do. It. I think there's a big challenge. So yeah, go ahead, do a do a sitcom about the workplace, but acknowledge that, that, that everyone's working in different ways now. There'll be a sitcom in like a Zoom a Zoom room for yeah, you know that so I wouldn't be surprised that that was what you'll be. There's got to be one about YouTube influencers yeah. coming up and all that. What you were going to write it on you sorry. Yeah. <laughs> I, um, I, I think that would be a bit um, sort of old lady writing about children. Like, <laughs> I'm 32. Yeah. So. Well, good morning kids. How do yeah. you do? Well, we've Fellow got kids. Yo yo yo. <laughs> James and I have been running a, uh, a competition, a, a sitcom script reading uh, challenge competition we've had uh, we got about 60 uh, entries for that and we have had quite a few already the uh, the YouTube stroke Instagram influencer is very much what uh, da kids or maybe da people listening to this yeah. show who want to be sitcom writers are writing so maybe they've got to go slightly another way are you I think Sarah are you doing a, a, a script reading competition as well so, yeah, mine, mine's I think a little more basic I um, wanted to find a total beginner um, and sort of introduce them to the industry so I started this competition called the First Laugh Comedy Writing Competition okay. which is actually um, credit to one of my Twitter followers I didn't come up with that name um, but um, it's basically one sketch ten jokes and just uh, they, they can't have more than two broadcast credits or two okay. credits on two different shows so really people who don't have a foothold in the industry yet um, um, uh, so we've just done the first round of judging for that um, okay. on Saturday and narrowed it down to 25 people and then we're wow. going to do a second round, narrow it down to top 10 and then um, I hope Julia doesn't mind me saying Julia McKenzie is going to be one of the judges okay. for the final. And She's the head of comedy at yeah. Radio 4. And so we, yeah, we've got some amazing um, mentors um, that people are going to meet like David Schneider and Saskia Schuster signed up. So. Yeah, so it's a, hopefully a really good prize for someone who wants to get into comedy but doesn't quite know how. Yeah. So you're a, you're mentoring people essentially. Um, or, I mean, I think I, I'm, I'm helping them up. I'm like the middle. I'm the middleman, <laughs> 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 putting them in touch with more competent people. Hold on, I've mentor. always heard you cut out the middleman. You <laughs> yeah. need to shift to be. I think they're putting the middleman back in. Yeah, they, they okay. the, yeah the middleman. Like, the last when they took all yeah, that weight. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we need That's the, when you get to our the reaction to the reaction. We're the, we want to be middlemen. Yeah, I think I, I'm finally old enough to write about 20-year-olds. I think it's like, yeah, I'm, a lot, I'm a lot younger than I used to be, put it that way. 
You're so much older than you're younger than that now. Now, don't give it away with the 1960s Californian rock <laughs> lyrics, Dave. Come on. So, so we're coming. I mean, we're we're, we're coming to the end now, and um, the, the, the the volume is uh, rising downstairs. So, um, before, so just just as a sort of final uh, uh, point. So. <laughs> Um, great jolly Christmas spirit. Are you going to buy us all a drink after this? Sorry? Are you going to buy us all a drink, eh? Oh, absolutely. All right, just checking. Just getting it on record. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. You've, you've, I think you've, Sarah, what are you going to have? Oh, gosh. So boring. Like a Diet Coke. A Diet Coke. With lemon? With lemon. Okay, they Christmas. I think you have earned a drink from this, from your contribution. Last, last thing I want to ask, so next year, uh, has anybody got, got any exciting plans in store or are they, like me, looking at a, a, a massively blank January? Don't want to rub it in your face now. No. <laughs> um, I'd just like to say, buy my book. Oh, yes. I've got another got novel coming out next year and I'm doing a massive fantastic marketing genius, actually, which is I'm, I've just put a collection of short stories on Amazon £2.99, which you can get for free if you pre-order the novel. <gasps> that is clever. That is fucking marketing genius. Oh You're being goodness. published by a real publisher. Yeah. As well. it's, got, it's a really nice publishing company, small independent called Eye and Lightning Books, um, right. run by about, there's only about six people, but one of them is uh, my edit, the guy's editor, my editor's Scott Pack, who used to be... Um, used to be the chief buyer at Waterstones uh, right. for years. And he, he's, he runs this amazing... And i tell you what is amazing. That he's got... They, they, the Eye and Lightning. Eye is the eye books of the, the um, non-fiction. Lightning books of the fiction. They, they've got some fantastic Antipodean writers. And it's really annoying because these, they, they're so good. And they don't... There's one guy called Ryan O'Neill, funnily enough, who's written two or three really brilliant novels, all of which have won every prize that you could win in Australia and New Zealand. And nobody knows, it's like nobody knows him from a hole in the ground in, in, in the UK. And Scott is very correctly... You know, promoting him and this extraordinary woman called I'm sorry, I've forgotten her name. <laughs> but writers that you know, it must be very frustrating to be a, to be Australia's top novelist. And yeah, it's like that's Tim Winton, isn't it? <laughs> Tim Winton. What Tim about Winton. us white sixty-something English writers, Paul? Though, when are we ever going to get a break? Yeah, I know. It's it's not fair, is it? If they wanted your book, how would they find it? Who? The listeners. They would go onto my Twitter feed at the writer type and see me constantly tweeting massive promotions about it. Or they would go to Iron Lightning Books and look for a book, <laughs> the next novel, which is called Please Do Not Ask for Mercy as a Refusal Often Offends. And I loved your first book as well. Oh, yeah, um, Utter is, Folly. Uh, remind me the title again. That was Utter Folly. Utter Folly, yes. And then the next um, one was called Dead Writers in Rehab. Right, yes. Which is, uh, yeah. But, yes, I know, thank you very much. Paul is a very, very That's a lot great of books, novelist. isn't it? That's a lot of books. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, I'm, You've written everything. You wrote a screenplay as well, didn't you? you did I've written a few, actually. Yeah, I try not to... That's... I, if you watch the Magic Roundabout feature film, you'll see me credited as a, with the screenplay, but... I would say that my, my, my script was improved in the same way that a heretic is improved by being burned at the stake. It was like, there's half of it I don't recognise, and it's shit. But if you've got a five-year-old kid, it, it ended up being a, 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 some weird marketing dodge for, for, um, for tre <laughs> Trevor Horn's music catalogue. I don't know, it was huge amounts of money. 
but well, yeah, this is we, so we, funny. It's such a different stuff. Like, of us, me and Sarah are like, we're like, would never say anything about it. Be like, oh, it was an interesting project, and I'm glad that I put my name to it. Which are like, this was shit. Well, I went to see. Uh, <laughs> I took the money and I ran. <laughs> no, I, I took the money and I ran, but I did learn a huge amount. And what, one thing I learned is it's actually better to have a lawyer than an agent when you're doing a movie. Because I, I, the lawyer actually ended up only taking about seven percent. My agent is a lawyer. Yeah, I'm afraid they're going to be, they're going to be fucking you from both ends. Unfortunately, <laughs> you've got a lawyer and an agent to deal with. That's no good. Anyway, sorry. Where do we get? How do we get to this remark? Well, I, I went to see uh, a screening of um, That'll Be the Day recently, which is a film from 40 years ago, which I loved as a teenager. And they had uh, David Putnam, the producer, and uh, Ray Connolly, the writer, and they were just talking about. You know, the kind of the way that it all got got made and things but one of the one of them, the main ways that they they got it made was because it was they do they got a record uh, deal with Ronco who used to make these records you know uh, Ronco greatest hits and super, super didn't they used to do covers of the yeah. older hits they right? did but this was this was actually original they used the original rock and roll songs but, and they had to put them all in the movie. So there's, a, there's this one scene in the fairground, because they had to put 40 songs on. So there's a scene in the fairground, and we didn't, it was only having watched it and them telling this story. There's, a, there's suddenly like that three seconds of, of each song, so there's a suddenly like sort of 15 rock and roll songs all sort of kind of pushed yeah. up to get each other. Just so, that's the only way they could get the film Music, made. publishing rights, the that's music where publishing. the money is. Exactly. Rolling Stones knew that 50 years ago. Yeah. That's why they're still doing it. So... Pippa, tell us, what are um, your plans for the new year? Well, my, I'm going on holiday for the whole of January, so... Right, so OK. So must be going... <laughs> and then uh, Showstoppers touring. But if you wanted to see something I did, I wrote the musical for Jack Whitehall's Christmas special, so there's a ten-minute musical called E-Musical, which is about him wanting to be an emu in a nativity play. So that's... Uh, on it. He wants to. He wanted to. No, he got the part of an emu in the nativity play, and so his dad was very upset with him because he wanted him to be Joseph. So it's about how the emu is actually the main character. Okay. Uh, so that's on the ne- his Netflix comedy special. Jolly good, excellent. Now, Sarah, the things that you're not allowed to tell us about. Ah, yeah. My entire year is taken up with things that I can't talk about yet, which is great. It's going to make a really interesting family Christmas. What are you doing with your life? Successful. Yeah, but I can't say anything. You can't you even tell those... your family. Oh, uh, no, I can, I can tell my family. I think I can tell my family. You never know. Are you going to do those great tweets, though, where you're like, um, something exciting coming up, no, dot, dot, wish I could, <laughs> hashtag blessed? Yeah. No, 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 I've been, I've been very much silent because I you know, have this fear of things falling through. Um, yeah. I, don't, I don't even like to drop hints in case. It's quite but... a rational fear to me. Yeah. <laughs> it's, 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 so, it's very sane. Yeah, but, um, but my year is basically taken up on two very, very big projects one big project in particular which I think is hopefully a go and won't fall through but then now that I've said that is it a television uh, I, 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 can't, I, I can't even say I'm not even allowed to say for the viewers at home it's, is it a it is it's one of them okay <laughs> right. it's one of them as well is it uh, uh, or a uh, I must just say that. Sarah is now giving us the whole story in expressive avant-garde mime. (laughs) I'm excited to say, it's got some fantastically exciting news that I can't talk about at the moment. I just have to wait till the ransom money's been paid. I mean, it's very much a question mark, but uh, the... I have a... That's a 
question mark yeah. Yeah. yeah okay well well let's all come back next year and we'll hear about yeah. all those meetings that you had with the producers where it was all signed and delivered and uh, let's let's see if a year on in your career you are still as uh, bright-eyed and happy and looking forward it to the like future. Sounds like such a threat, this today, doesn't, doesn't it? Really does, yeah. yeah. Let's see how happy you are in a year's time. To talk about. Yeah. But hopefully I'm that would be... i say that every year, forever. Yeah. Well, that would be just a result, wouldn't it? Serious. Yeah. So I don't actually I work in comedy. The, yeah. the, the, the best advice I was ever given was by this American guy who writes the... who does these courses to make independent movies called Dolph Simmons. And he said, next time anyone asks you what you're doing, just say to them, I have new Numerous projects in various stages of development. Yes. Yeah. And I tried it, and I thought I'm going to say this. Someone asked it to me, and I waited for them to laugh, and they didn't. And I thought they went, oh, "Wow, that's really impressive." Yeah. That's not what I, a comedian wants. Really. I use it all the time. It's brilliant. Yeah, so, yeah, because that can even includes like when you walk down the street, you go, well, "That's yeah. a good idea." <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, it's good. I mean, so, you should, as a writer, we should all have. You've got to have at least five things on the go. Hands in pies. Thank you very much, uh, guys and uh, guys and gals, to use the uh, terribly sexist form of this. But everybody here, Pippa Evans, thank you. <laughs> Paul Bassett Davis, yeah, Sarah you. Gibbs, thank you very much. Can't um, see me waving. Thank you. I saw you waving. <laughs> <laughs> Sarah's waving. Good luck with your. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs>